We're going to get a chance to talk about uh, the economy. Riaz Aziz is our guest, uh, and Riaz has been uh, kind of our go-to guy for a long time, uh, bringing things forward that I might disagree with, I might agree with. But the fact of the matter is, uh, this is how he sees it, and I like that. He's an instructor of economics at Concordia College. Riaz, good to have you back on News and Views. Joel, happy to be here. Thank you so much. How you been? Been pretty good, actually. You know, the, hey, who can complain when you can look at outside, look outside, see green grass, yes. or at least brown grass, anyway, yep. for Christmas and for New Year's, right? Well, so, I, I was trying to explain this to a friend that two months that we normally would have winter are gone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you're you're kind of in the middle of January now, right? You yep. got three weeks of January left. So you got January, February, and then by the middle of March, oftentimes, I've seen farmers planting in March. Yep, exactly. And coming down the road here, I saw semi-trucks delivering uh, boats and RVs. Yeah. So <laughs> think clear, about that. Clear sign. I, although I did have a friend from down south that I was talking to about this. So I was making the, the pitch that you and I just talked about. And he said, okay, I understand it. And I understand why you're kind of fired up by it. He said, but why do you live in a place where you want time to pass quickly? <laughs> and I didn't have an answer for that. And if you can think of one, you let me know. Yeah, I don't think we, I don't think we live in a place where we like to pass time quickly. We live in a place where we can actually see four seasons, Joel. Yeah, that's, that's just true. it. That's you true. Know. Although last uh, year, last winter, I would argue we saw two. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, know, know, I know. It's just part of it. Raz, uh, also, before we start, I want to do this. Tell people about your foundation. Tell people about what you do. Thank you so much, Joel. Uh, we have been running a foundation for about 11 years right now, taking care of underprivileged women in India. These are women that live on $1,000 a year. The whole family, 8 to 10, live on $1,000 a year. We pluck them out of the, some of the worst slums in India, and we put them in college. And we, make, we stay with them anywhere from four to six years, sometimes seven years, make sure they graduate from college, make sure they get a good education, make sure they get a job. Make sure they can stand on their own two feet and help make the, make their own decisions and basically design their own future. A lot of these women don't get that chance, and that's what we try to do. And so far, we've been able to help out about 130 women in the last 11 years, and so we're continuing to do that. How, how do you find them? I know you're going to say it isn't hard to find them, but you know, 130 in a country like India, that's a small number in right. terms of what I'm sure you see the need for, but how do you make the determination that – you know, the abbeys of the world are worthy of your scholarship? Well, uh, you know, in the beginning, it was a bit of a challenge. Eventually, word got out who we are, what we do. So people now come to us. So we have a very, very detailed methodology we go through in terms of evaluating them to make sure that they meet the criteria. They obviously have to graduate from high school. They have to have a fairly decent set of marks. But the most important thing is that we need their family support. We can't, we can't get into a battle with a family that says, no, my daughter is basically here to get married, have kids, so on and so forth, in which, which case we can't touch them. But if a family is open to the idea that they, can get an, that they will let their daughters get an education, we are very supportive of that in, in, in that avenue, and then we take them through the process. But the biggest thing is we get people not coming to us and saying, hey, listen, I've got a daughter. Uh, I, I'm a minister in a church. I have a, I have a parishioner here that's got somebody that can really use your help and support. And so those kind of connections and the word of mouth gets to it. So you and I have known each other for a number of years now, and you're sitting there going, you asked me to come in and talk about the economy. Uh, but this is absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, you know, by now and for as long as you've been doing this, you must see how this succeeded in certain ways. You must know some of those individuals that come back and say, wow, look at my life now. Yep. 
Uh, we have had nearly 100% success rate. I would say 99% we have we, we lost one. Uh, she got pregnant, got married, so forth. But 99% of the girls we do through our program, we have a success rate because they graduate from college, they get a job, and they are the very first one, first ones in their entire family's history to ever get a college education and start a career. If not for that, the cycle of poverty would continue. And a couple of them are now poised in a position where they will now start to find candidates like themselves, kind of people that we found, and to help them out. So one of the commitments we get from these women is that when you stand up on your own two feet, go find another girl just like you that we found five years, seven years ago, and make commitment to her to help her get from where she is to where she could possibly be. Mm And that's the way of sort of returning it back, if you will. Uh, when when you think of India, and you you know you're sitting there talking about you got to break that that cycle of poverty, and you know that cycle of the lack of education or the lack of opportunity to get an education, but is another one of those hurdles being female? Yes, absolutely. It's no different than the than, than the rest of the world. We are about 100 to 150 years ahead of it. Okay. We were also at a time in this country here where the idea of a woman getting an education was considered taboo, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are big parts Even of the being world. being able to vote was Yeah, taboo. being able to vote yeah. was a big taboo, okay? Own property, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, those issues certainly are there. That's one of the reasons why we focus on, on, on women because they are still disadvantaged in many parts of the world, if you will. Uh, they are not seen as the breadwinner of the family. The man is the breadwinner of the family, so why put the resources towards the woman? Uh, I mean, imagine taking half your population and basically not considering them as an economic viability to to, to the nation and to the family unit, you know. One of the statistics that I like to always tell, tell those who are interested in donating or being a part of our organization is this. A woman without an education has anywhere from an 8 to 12% chance of educating her children. A woman with an education has a 97% probability that she's going to educate her children. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's, that's the a, end of the cycle. That's the end of the cycle. Right. Exactly. The more you do. Exactly. Right? So if people want to donate to that foundation, if they want to help out that foundation, is there a possibility? Or? Yes, they can. They can go to our website, which is www.begunahi.com. I'll spell that B-E-G-U-N-A-H-I.com. And there is a link right there. They can click on it and make the donation. So, and just so you know, for you folks saying I didn't get that, know this, that Abby will be podcasting this conversation. And, Abby, you can put that website there. Yep, uh, absolutely. That link there. So, um, somebody said, uh, will you have your guests talk about the caste system in India? Uh, it does seem very democratic. I don't know what that means. Well, your 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 caller, or rather, your, your the, the person you listening to the program is correct about it. There is a caste system. The caste system goes back to over two thousand years ago, which basically allocates people based upon certain characteristics uh, of the individuals. Uh, and the lowest caste in India is called the Dalits. Uh, the Dalit castes are considered the untouchables. Uh, these are people that other castes believe that you can't even touch them. They can't eat in your home. Uh, they can't share the same well or water, if you will. And they end up getting some of the worst possible jobs. Okay, now the India banned this caste system a couple of decades ago, but it doesn't take away the sense. You know, it, it, it's, it's prejudicial in many ways. Uh, they are restricted from jobs, restricted from opportunities, and they have to fight for it. You know, it's, it's, it's another layer. Imagine you being part of the lowest caste, 
and being a woman. That's a double uh, double hitter. So uh, I'm very glad that that question got asked because I didn't know uh, that structure. Um, uh, somebody said, uh, well, you ask your professor to touch on the 2012 paper from uh, foreignpolicy.com about the Chinese economy and how it's being characterized as national socialism with uh, Chinese characteristics. Uh, and also, please ask why, if migration is such a great long-term uh, economic strategy, why don't places like China and Russia utilize it? Well, again, keep in mind that that there are migration demands are there in places where you have and where people see as the future growing. There are not too many people migrating to China because they think the Chinese economy is going to grow so strongly. And keep in mind the Chinese population. The immigration problem is a long-term problem that we can solve if we only will take a look at the uh, the immigration issue as a global issue as opposed to my country and your country, okay? So, for example, right now, China is having relatively high unemployment rate relative to what they're used to doing, relative to what they're used to having. So they're not seeing as much migration there. Number two, you're also seeing a system where if you were a resident of China, did you know you cannot own property? You can build a home on a piece of land, and the land is owned by the government. Okay, uh, in this country, we consider property ownership as as an individual right. You own it, you keep it. That that is yours. So there are all kinds of other factors that 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 come into play, if you will. And the other thing about the Chinese economy, again, no matter it is a growing economy, it is is it's influential throughout the world. But when you have a government structure that does limit what you can say, where you can live to some extent, if you will, what kind of businesses you can engage with, it kind of makes people think twice a little bit. Should I make the investment? Should I, should, should I, should I engage in it? And so therefore, those countries have some problems with that. We, on the other hand, are having less and less birth. Uh, families are having smaller and smaller uh, number of children, if you will. As you can see, everywhere you go, there's a need for jobs in this country, meaning they're looking for employees. Okay, mm-hmm. but unemployment is pretty low here, uh, and that can be solved with with some more reformed migration programs in the United States, which of course uh, many uh, both sides of the parties have been trying for the last two decades and haven't found their hands at it. We're getting the opportunity to visit with Riaz Aziz. He is an instructor of economics at Concordia College, and he's someone that we love uh, just looking at where we're at in society uh, with our economy and where he feels we're going to be uh, greatest this year, uh, 2023 versus 2022. Grade those two years. I would say I would give 2023 a B, or a B plus, uh, compared to a C uh, for the previous year. Um, but all in all, very good, actually. Um, right now, we talk uh, talk about unemployment. Last time when you had me on the radio station, you said, what are we doing in terms of recession? I said, I don't see this being a soft landing or recession anywhere on the horizon because infl- uh, unemployment was held at 3.5%, 3.7%, which is good. GDP growth is pretty nominal, which is, very, which is also very good. 4.9%. We're probably heading into 2% for t- 2024. So that, that also is that a good uh, thing or a bad thing? It's a it's a good thing. I mean, I would definitely like to see it greater than that in in three percent, three and a half percent. But two percent is really not something to cough at, if you will. Uh, I see zero percent right now. The fact you don't have the workers to go beyond exactly, in some cases. exactly. And I see zero percent as far as recession goes. Um, and so, so overall speaking, with unemployment being maintaining what it is, 
and the GDP being what it is, and inflation. Inflation, by the way, you know, we, we, we literally cut it by half, if you will. Uh, I would give it an, uh, an A minus or A plus, if you will, if it was cut even more, but it's been cut by half. Uh, from 8% down to about 3.5%. So that's very good. Gas prices, as you know, came down from roughly about $4 a gallon down to $3.5 a gallon. This is nationwide speaking now, average-wise. Right. In that's, our area, about two sixty right now. Exactly. Exactly. So that's very good. Uh, interest rates have been coming down. As you know, the Fed indicated they were not interested in looking at cutting, uh, increasing uh, the interest rate, the prime interest rates anymore. That suggests to me that the Feds are looking at the economy and saying, okay, we, we see stability in the future. So let's hold off at this time right now. Consumer spending is doing is still holding its own. Uh, we did very well uh, the, this last third, fourth quarter, if you will, 2023. Uh, consumers are going to be a little bit sluggish because they don't know what's going to happen in 2024, given the war in Ukraine, the uh, the war in the Middle East with, with Israel and Hamas. Uh, we also have a presidential election, as you probably know, for 2024. That causes uh, some issues and some concerns. Capital investment is a little bit on the slower side, if you will. That is businesses spending money. Large businesses are doing okay. Small and medium businesses are still being hit by the interest rates. So that's a problem. That's a problem for them. Uh, but overall, if you look at the markets, Joel, that's where I get excited. You know, when I look at the S&P, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, they're all shooting up 13, 13%, 24%, 43% by the end of last year. And that's all very good news because that, to me, tells there's a positive trend, uh, trend coming. And, of course, the other good news, over this weekend, uh, Chuck Schumer and Speaker Stevens got together and they came up with an agreement for a budget, if you will, uh, which means it most likely will avoid a budget shutdown. That causes positive trends along the way. Now, of course, Kong, neither neither uh, party has actually, neither house has actually uh, finally voted on the, on the budget. But when you have leadership supporting the budget, and both sides on the aisle of Congress knows they don't want to shut down. Uh, when we come back, the one thing I'm really interested in is how big of a barometer anymore consumer spending is. Because uh, America doesn't mind a credit card and they don't mind, de uh, mind debt. More coming your way here on News and Views. We're getting the opportunity to visit with Riaz Aziz. He is instructor of economics at Concordia College. Uh, we're talking inflation. We're talking about where the economy and the market is going in in 2024. Uh, but but one uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about Riaz was consumer spending mm -hmm. uh, because during what was an economic downturn, uh, a recession versus you know we we're on the on the cusp of a recession mm -hmm. and i remember you saying you don't see it happening mm -hmm. a lot of ec economists did mm -hmm. uh and yet consumer spending never backed off correct why well again uh americans are loaded with cash number one uh, to some extent based on the previous uh, checks that we received for the previous administration but there's another, but there's another thing as well i think we need to understand the difference between needs and wants okay spending drives this economy you and I spend, whether it's vacation or buying a house, a car, pickup truck, whatever, that turns the economy. But the question is, we have to be able to manage it within, within certain levels. The question I have is that the Wall Street Journal study that came out about five years ago said the average American is within two paychecks away from declaring bankruptcy should they end up losing a job. Okay, That is a significant concern because if we were, have, were to hit another recession, the question is, does the average family sustain itself beyond a few months? Can they sustain themselves for a year? That's my biggest concern. It's not so much the spending of it, is whether or not the spending is far in excess of what they can basically sustain, the pain, if you will, for an extended period of time. 
Now, Riaz, when you when you look at it, is America disciplined enough to do what you just described? Because there wasn't a uh, an America that was not afraid to charge everything up on credit cards, uh, was not afraid to buy homes they couldn't afford, uh, was not afraid to sign a document that said we have uh, an interest rate that can climb uh, to wherever we're, we're not afraid. You know, charge me 6%. Make it a variable interest rate. I don't care. Are we disciplined enough to to not do that? Simple answer, no. Uh, we're not disciplined because we found that lesson to be true 2007, 2008, 2009. Why do we have the housing crisis? Because people were jumping into homes that they couldn't afford. Just because the banks basically were, were, were bundling these, their, their, these loans, if you will. That's a totally separate subject matter. But the point is that you, you and I need a home. I'm not sure we need five bedrooms and four bathrooms. We all, you and I need a car. We need to get to work. We need to get to school. We need to do things. We don't, I'm not sure we need to have a $70,000 pickup truck. I'm not knocking any of these expenditures, each to their own. But the point is we've got to be learning. We've got to learn the lessons of 2007, 8, and 9. We have to learn the lessons going back decades when our forefathers basically said, I need all these things too, but I'm going to manage those within what I can afford to do so I can sustain myself for at least a year if things go south. Uh, okay, let's talk about the workforce itself. Uh, if if you look at, we talked about India earlier, uh, and we talked about the needs in India, healthcare, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the needs to raise people up to a new or a higher level economic class. Well, you know, but they're still having babies exactly. in India. Exactly. In China, they limited babies. Right. They said you can have one. Yep. And if you look at it, I don't think you have to be a nuclear physicist to figure out that that cut down on their economic strength, yes. Uh, the workforce itself. If you look at America, you know we didn't force anybody, but the truth of the matter is we're having less children. Exactly. Uh, you know, I come from a family of seven kids, and now the, I have two. I I don't have any sibling that actually I do. I have one that had more than two. So that's less of a workforce. That's not even less of a workforce. It's less of an uh, uh, issue on the economy as a whole. Think about this. India is right now the, the uh, is the country with the largest population. Okay, it has it is the nation where there are more people in their twenties and thirties than there are senior citizens. More than half the country in India is less than thirty, age thirty. Okay, they can't find the jobs. So so population has an effect on, on the economic well being of the nation, if you will. On the other extreme, we have our our situation where people are having less children, so we can't even fill the jobs that we have vacant here. Okay, so so that certainly plays a role. But keep in mind, Joe, one of the things you and I talked about earlier is that why is it that the poorer the country is, the greater the population, and that's because in those countries, before if you don't lift the world up altogether, as while you're lifting yourself up, is that the poorest of the poor end up controlling only one thing: can they make babies? Yes, they can. Okay. They also see that as being a resource. The more babies I end up having, the more there is for, for uh, children to take care of me in my older age. Okay. So the cycle t- t- continues to c- continues to happen. Now you take a country like China, which is you know very heavy-handed in terms of how it goes. They approach the one-child policy. Uh, they have now opened it up to two-child policy, by the way, uh, and that's because and what China is going to be dealing with is a whole population in the millions where one child is now going to be responsible for two elderly parents. 
Okay, not only taking care of their own family, but also so they don't have any sibling support because they were just part of this one child family program. So you can't really mandate that at the end of the day without having some significant economic impact and social impact as well. I, I want to talk about, you know, it's an election year. Yes. It, you know, it's 2024. And I don't know your politics, never have, never cared. Uh, you know, because I think you've always given me just a, a good independent standpoint of factual data about the economy. I'll give you mine here, <laughs> okay? okay. Uh, because I'm not afraid to give you sure, mine. Sure, go for it. Uh, it's my. It's. I truly believe that uh, George W. Bush didn't care about the housing market, never cared about it coming. Uh, you know, and basically drove the debt up to record levels. Then you've got Barack Obama come in, and you had to spend to stop us actually from getting into a depression, certainly a recession for a while, and that worked. Mm-hmm. Then the economy's doing better. Mm-hmm. Trump comes in. The economy is good because he's got the keys to a good economy when he gets it. Mm-hmm. And what does the nation do? It takes on more debt. Mm-hmm. It takes on record Absolutely. debt. Absolutely. Um, how does that affect the Biden administration in the beginning, the policies mm-hmm. versus now? Mm-hmm. Which leads me to ask another question, which is if I'm gonna if I'm gonna bet mm-hmm. on a successful economy, mm-hmm. where should I look? Well, here's the thing: the successful economy is going to be dependent upon we the Americans, okay? Here's the situation. Uh, as we end up having um, uh, uh, the, the presidential election taking place in 2024, it changes the psychology of people. You asked me earlier about how the economy is doing. I thought it was doing great. I think it's going to do even better. But we have one unknown factor. Who's going to control Congress and who's going to control the White House? People are going to be thinking about that, okay, on both sides of the aisle. And that causes a dip in the economic and uh, the economic flow because th- there is a sen- sense of unsettlement. We won't know the results till November, if you will, later November, if you will. So for the, for the for 11 more months, people are going to be all over the place trying to see who is going to take what. And as soon as that, until that is decided, people are going to be sense, okay, if he gets in, economy is going to be bad. Or if he gets in, economy is going to be a boom, or maybe it'll be just as bad. There's calls for us to leave NATO. There's calls on the other side to increase taxes, or the calls on the other side to lower taxes. All these are unsettling factors. If you look at our history in this country, every time there is an election year, the economy is either fat, flat, or it begins to take a slight nose dip. Okay? And that's because... It doesn't matter which party. It doesn't matter which party. And that's because... There's uncertainty, and we, Americans and human beings all over the world, we don't like uncertainty. This is 12 months of not knowing who's going to control Congress and who's going to control the White House, that we're all going to be sitting and guessing and listening to, listening to talking heads and reading newspapers and all this other stuff, but not really know the answer till November. Uh, America, uh, I, I believe, uh, really looks at its economy based solely on its economy and not necessarily on a world economy which is the you know where we compete now uh the other thing i think america looks at is they wake up in the morning it's gas prices yes i mean it's gas prices if you if you ask whether or not you know joe biden was successful in his economy in the beginning it was gas prices now those anti-biden are saying well gas prices you know i don't care about that those in the middle that are independent are saying well wait a second here things have gotten better i'm curious what your take is well absolutely and one of the reasons why i alluded to the price of grass is because you and i use it every single day okay uh four dollars a gallon versus three and a half dollars a gallon means we have consumer surplus 
consumer surplus, as I teach my students, is that every dollar that you don't spend buying fuel for your car or your pickup truck is another dollar you can invest in the market or you can invest in someplace else, in your kids, in your education, if you will. So that does matter. The fact that we currently have a very, very good, strong economy, the fact that we have fuel prices going down, it certainly speaks well to the current administration, but that could change on a dime. Do, do you believe that wages have kept pace with inflation? Yes, uh, to a certain extent, uh, not ever, not in every sector. As you know, the automotive industry negotiated a very good lucrative deal recently after giving back a number of years, the, the, the unions, if you will. Uh, so I see the economy growing, uh, wages, wages also keeping, not necessarily keeping pace with the past, but keeping pace with the current inflation rate to a certain extent. Unfortunately, that is not true in all segments of the market, if you will. I think uh, you see that in academia, you see that in, in the high-tech industry, if you will. You see that a lot in the automotive industry, in the airline industry. Those areas are doing quite well, and the medical industry as well. Has Social Security kept up? Have we? How big of a trouble is this looming out in the future? Well, Social Security is doing okay inflation-wise for you and I, who, who who may be entitled to receive Social Security. I'm not so sure how Wait fluent, a second how, how fluent that I'm Social Security is going to be. I know, and, and I'm I'm a couple of years <laughs> Actually, away too. I'm not but I'm looking ahead. I'm looking at my numbers right now and saying, okay, if I if I were to draw today, yes, uh, that would be very helpful, and I and I appreciate the just uh, the, the upscale yeah. uh, that I'm going to get because of the inflation factor there. But you know, here's the thing: the consumer price index. Although we knocked it down from 8.5 to 3.2 percent, we are still seeing higher rates at the at the grocery store. I mean, gas prices are down, but the grocery prices are still high, if you will, in my opinion. So that's another factor. Okay, as I talked about earlier, Joel, if you are looking to buy, if you're a first-time home buyer, and you are looking to maybe get from your starter home to your first real home, if you will. 6%, 6.5% is the expected interest rate 2024 will be do, will be good, but nowhere near the 2.2% that I experienced when I refinanced my home. Okay. Is, is or are there certain commodities you buy that once they reach a certain level, whether it be through inflation, whether it be through a lot of things, get you used to paying that much for and they'll never reverse even though they might be able to vis-a-vis uh, a vehicle yes you know you will look at a vehicle and say well okay that that pickup truck should be cheaper now because the the what it takes to build that truck is less well here's the thing price is determined by demand okay if you and i could buy pickup trucks pickup trucks will come down to either ten thousand dollars or people will just quit making pickup trucks one or the other but as long as you and I are buying pickup trucks, why should they lower the price? There is no reason for it, okay? So yeah, cons- uh, the, the producers of these products are going to hope they can keep the prices high enough because you're getting used to it. And as long as you are still willing to open up your wallet and buy a pickup truck for 50000 60000 70000 and you think that as being normal, there is no incentive to me as a producer to lower the price. There are a lot of text messages that came in. I'll get to many of these, uh, I promise, when we come back. Just having a blast, getting a chance to talk to th- about the economy with Riaz Aziz. He is an instructor of economics at Concordia uh, College. Uh, you know, somebody texted in and said, what does he think about these out-of-control farmland prices? Is this a bubble? Will it ever go down? Will it not? Uh, almost every sector of the economy acts, uh, functions in a bubble. Okay, uh, demand drives prices. 
If you're paying five, six grand, whatever it is right now, they're asking for an acre of property. It is there because the demand is there and the suppliers are there. They're willing to uh, charge those higher prices. Uh, will this thing sustain itself? If you recall, Joel, in the 70s, we went through this. Farmers were told, your land price will never go down. You can buy anything you want. You can, you know, every new equipment on the planet that you want to lay your hands on, you can do. And that bubble bust. Okay, same thing we happened in 2007, 8, and 9, but not the farming industry, in the housing industry. So I, my, my caution to my students is this. Uh, if something is too good and, is, and, and it's growing ra- rapidly, expect it to come down to its natural state. But, but the difference, I would argue, between what you described in the farming industry and the housing industry was the housing industry didn't subsidize the homeowner uh, in the same way. I mean, you didn't you didn't see the housing industry say, well, gee, you know, we'll make sure you never have a variable interest rate unless you're on the low income. Of course, we know there's a program or two for that. Uh, but in the farming industry, you know, federal crop insurance, you don't have to get up in the in the morning and worry about it's going to be a devastating year. Might not be a great year, mm-hmm. but you, you understand what I'm getting right. at. Right, I understand, I understand. And, you know, we made this decision as a nation in the 1950s and early 60s that one of the things we were going to make sure is that the Americans have had the ability to put food on their table, okay? Fair or unfair as that might be, I will tell you this. As a percentage of what Americans spend on groceries, even though it's higher at the grocery store today, it is nothing compared to what people in the rest of the world, developing world, percentage spend on of it. income, percentage was. of income that they spend. Mm-hmm. You went if you go to Europe, okay, you, uh, or elsewhere, you'll be spending three times more on groceries than, than Americans do. Okay, even with our higher prices. Okay, we made the conscious decision that we were going to subsidize the agriculture industry by doing so, and so and so we did. Raz, always good to talk to you. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, make sure those Concordia students listen, okay? I'm happy to be a job. <laughs> good ride with I'll you. I'll tell them that too. Have a good day.